Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 170, and it's part number five of our series called Instant Replay, where we're looking back over three years of episodes and uh, replaying the ones that uh, maybe stand out to me uh, the most when I think of our podcast. I think of the work that we've done. Uh, these are some of my favorite conversations that I've had. And uh, in some ways, they've all been favorites because they've all been different. Um, and so we're doing 20 episodes. We're at number five right now. So we got 15 more to go. And I kind of made the list. And I'm like, man, I wish I, would, I wish I could make it longer. I don't want to make it too long because then I'll just replay all the episodes, which is not the point uh, of what we're doing. Uh, but 20 episodes... Uh, 20 of my favorites, and uh, this is number five uh, with Matthew Cortman. And this was an episode that we did a little over about a year ago. Yeah, it was about a year ago. We were doing a series called To Hell With Hell. <laughs> that didn't cause any problems. <laughs> to, to Hell With Hell. And we were kind of picking apart uh, the doctrine of hell as it's known in the world of evangelicalism uh, that you... Uh, believe in Jesus and die and go to heaven or don't believe in Jesus and die and, and go to hell and hell is this place of you know eternal torment and some people say it's fire and you're literally being burned for eternity some people say it's just darkness and you're separated from God for eternity and whatever it is hell is this place that exists where people go because they believe the wrong things and so we, we pick this apart uh, episode by episode, we talked to people like N.T. Wright, uh, Brian McLaren, uh, Jennifer Mayo, Julie Ferwerda, uh, Keith Giles, Matthew Cortman, Connie Tuttle, all different people came on uh, with lots of different backgrounds to share their perspective. Uh, some people are were like ex-pastors, some are authors, Matthew Cortman is a scholar, as is N.T. Wright, and Really, really good stuff. And so I learned an immense amount during that series. And uh, Matthew Cortman is someone who I always learn a lot from. He wrote a book called Saying No to God. And in the book, he talked about hell. And so I think we called this episode Saying No to Hell or something like that. But uh, good stuff coming. Uh, so buckle up and get ready because Matthew Cortman uh, is going to give you, it's going to like dump his knowledge on you <laughs> very soon. So. Uh, if taking notes is your thing, I hope you can write fast because there's good stuff. Well, you could always pause it, right? That's just, that's obviously what you can do. So you could always pause it, or, or you can slow it down. You can make them talk really slow if you have the. Uh, you could do it in Spotify and, and the Apple app as well. So anyway, whatever. It's early right now. It's like six thirty in the morning. I have my cup of coffee here. Uh, I'm recording this intro before. Before the secret world wakes up <laughs> and uh, gets going. Jordan, my daughter, uh, she has a sound machine in her room. And it goes off at 7.20, letting her know. Well, the light turns green. That means she get up and play. Then it goes off at like 7.40. And she's ready to go, like a 1,000 miles per hour. So I've got to have at least two cups of coffee in me uh, before that before that happens uh, in the show notes today patreon and buy me coffee if you want to support the show financially two places you can go to do that uh, the heretic shop is a place to go and buy some t-shirts and some hoodies there's a new design in there uh, it says on it all who wander 
are not lost. And it's kind of our one of our fall shirts. It's got some color to it, uh, but it's on it's printed on some some fallish colors. So head over there and check it out. I'll put the links to it uh, in the show notes. Special music today is from my friend before Jane. Uh, I've known this guy since he was a kid. Uh, he lives in the northern part, the northeastern part of the United States, and he's doing some really, uh, really good stuff with his music. Uh, he's got a great personality, a great character. Um, he has his own podcast as well, which I can't think of the name off the top of my head. Wait a minute. First-hand film critics. Uh, he does it with his friend. And uh, really, really good stuff. Um, he's just very talented, very creative. Uh, so I encourage you to go look him up and put all of his links in the show notes, uh, along with the podcast. Why not? Put the podcast in there as well. Uh, head over there and uh, check out all of the things. So all that to say, my friends, uh, again, episode number 170. I'm going to go take another gulp of coffee. And I'll catch you later. Let's roll the tape. Enjoy. How many times will I go around the circle? And how many times will I go around the spiral? And how many times will you be at the end of it? Or the end of it? Every time I think we're through, I close my Friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are joined by a repeat guest and someone who has become a friend of mine over the last year, uh, Matthew Cortman. He was on the show about a year ago for our Bible series to talk about his book, Saying No to God. And today he joins us to talk about, drumroll please, uh, the topic of hell. So Matthew, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Glenn, for having me back. Uh, This is one of my favorite podcasts, uh, and I'm super happy to be back with you. Thank you. So we have a ton to talk about. Uh, So let's just jump right in. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about hell. I want to talk to you in particular about uh, the chapter in your book called Saying No to Hell. And so I was thinking to kick us off, maybe talk to us a little bit about how you, uh, Matthew, were brought up to understand hell. I believe you were raised in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. And so how was hell talked about for you as a child? It wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> the simple answer. Next question. No, I mean, it, it, I mean it, it wasn't, it wasn't. So it right. wasn't in the sense that when we talked about hell, and this is true in general for almost, I think, all Adventists anywhere in the world. Mm. When you talk about hell, uh, it's not brought up by an Adventist in relationship to anything an Adventist thinks. So it's not something congenial to Adventist theology. You're not going to bring it up when you're talking about uh, about practically anything in the Bible. What mm-hmm. ends up happening is when hell's mentioned, it's in basically reference to other people who think about or talk about hell. Mm-hmm. So hell becomes the, like that other, that word for that other weird belief that a bunch of other Christians mistakenly have. Or if you should by accident listen to, you know, some evangelical talking about hell and then start to talk about hell as if it was real, you might get corrected uh, you know, and that's how, you know, hell comes in the conversation. But otherwise, growing up, like, hell was not um, an idea that came into my into my thinking. Mm. Um, a day of judgment, uh, you know, a lake of fire uh, at one moment in time in history, yes, 
Hmm. Uh, so Adventists are often are on the annihilation kind of end of the spectrum of discussion. So the idea of hell is, is if it's ever discussed, it's relegated to sort of a single day, a single moment in time, um, a single uh, final judgment that sets the world right. It's hmm. not a eternal, it's not uh, something that keeps going, and it's not something that's talked about as um, something which kind of operates under Satan's control. Uh, Satan is the first one to go in. Um, it, so in terms of hellfire growing up, um, the traditional evangelical idea that most people grow up and deal with is just explicitly rejected, just mm. outright. So, and it's, it's funny because it's like you grow up knowing about it, but you never grow up necessarily dealing with it. So when I wrote the chapter uh, in saying no to God and I wrote the chapter saying no to hell, um, it was one of my, at first it was one of my least favorite chapters to write because for me, uh, you know, when you've rejected something so long, it feels tedious to, to think like, oh, I have to write an argument against it. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, like it was never a big deal for me. I never had to wrestle with hell. That was never something because I was never given that, that baggage growing up. But then it was fun writing it because I almost had to like go back into my own tradition and try to re reinvent uh, empathy for like, all right, how, why did we end up rejecting hell? And, and that was actually a lot of fun to do, hmm. but it's funny that this chapter originally was like one of my least favorites. I was much more interested in like the exclusivity chapter and, and, and things that like challenged myself and my tradition and the say no to hell. It's so traditionally Adventist that I was just like, ah, uh, but then I had to remind myself like, that's it. It's traditionally Adventist. Lots of Christians struggle with this topic. Um, and so the chapter has, you know, funny enough, been very important to a lot of people who have read the book. Yeah, I found it very helpful because for me, like I, w I grew up in that setting with the hellfire and, you know, it was all about, you got to believe the right thing about Jesus. If you don't, you go to hell and you're basically tortured forever, whether it's fire, whether it's darkness, separation from God, whatever, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. So get your act together, you know, now. And so when I read that chapter, like I wasn't really aware that uh, your tradition felt that way about how like that was that was very new for me. So I found it very relieving. I suspect that part of the reason is that um, a lot of evangelicals, for some reason, are like consider us one of them, even mm -hmm. though like we Adventists have so many differences with evangelicals on so many issues. I mean, there's also a lot, a lot of common points, like with all Christians, right? Sure, but I sure. mean, like progressives have a ton of things in common with evangelicals, but right. that doesn't stop evangelicals from thinking progressives have nothing to do with them. Right. <laughs> um, but for some reason, the, the differences that are so stark in Adventism never seem to like register with evangelicals. It reminds me of like the Romans, how they looked at the Jews and the new Christians. Like they had the same beliefs in the beginning, mm -hmm. but like the Romans were used to the Jews. They were like, these are the crazy people. Right. We accept you. The Christians were like, you're us. Right. The, what the heck happened? It's spreading. The cancer has left the crazy group and it's moving into our group. No. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel like that partly explains what happened with Rob Bell. Uh, you know, right. it, it's like Bell was one of them. <laughs> that was same phenomenon. Wait a minute. No, no, no. It's different when it's them. Now it's you. We have a problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think that uh, in relationship to thinking through these ideas, you know, a lot of people really do struggle with them. And it, you know, it causes such emotional heartache, which is funny, because, you know, the very 
the very beginnings of the Adventist tradition and why these issues occurred um, and how we got the doctrine that we did of rejecting uh, all of this is in part because uh, one of the early theological founders of Adventism, Ellen White, she had this experience of being a young girl and uh, fearing for her eternal salvation as mm -hmm. a 10 year old. And, uh, and she was just so absolutely frightened, nearly going insane over the, the images of hell that she was hearing in churches and so forth. And it wasn't until she found out that her mom doubted hell that it suddenly sparked her to, to start realizing that there was an alternative way of viewing things. Mm. And then it was through that, you know, through that little, that little mention of it, you know, God doesn't have to, to look like the devil, that suddenly you were able to go ahead and say, oh, wait, I can rethink ideas and, and, and entertain new possibilities. And for a lot of people, you know, I think when they're thinking about hell and they're, they come from an evangelical background um, or whatever background, Catholic, otherwise, uh, they are looking for, you know, is there an actual argument that can help me to overcome this issue? Like I've heard all the arguments from the, the traditional groups telling me that this is what the Bible says. Okay, okay. But does it really? Is mm. it that simple? Mm. Is there more to it? Let's drill down into that a little bit about Ellen White, because that was an interesting part in the book for me that I had never, I, I, I think I've heard of her before, but I never like read any of her quotes. And you have some of her quotes in the book, but um, you, you say something about her in the book, and then you say this. I want to read this for our listeners. You say, for White, then, the true evil of the doctrine of hell, what drove her to fight it tooth and nail, is, that it do is what it does to our understanding of who God is. The terrible price this doctrine enacts on those who believe it is what it does to mar the character of Jesus. It is by hell's presumed fires in our frightened imaginations that Jesus becomes morphed into Satan himself. The devil and God become one and the same. So talk, talk to us more about, about that. Like, how does the idea of hell morph God and Satan into one? What, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I think of it this way, right? Like, mm -hmm. what would, you know, WWSD. Um, right. <laughs> what would Satan do? <laughs> you know, what would Satan do? Uh, right. You know, and, and if the answer is what you saying Jesus is doing, mm. then that just might, you know, conflate WWJD and WWSD together. Now, yeah. admittedly, mm. you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I think people can push, you know, um, people can push too far. Like Satan may be evil in the tradition, but at the same time, you know, I, I, if Satan could breathe, that wouldn't necessarily make breathing wrong. Right. Um, you sure. know, like there is a limit to, you know, saying like, look, they're similar, you know, this, 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 this is kind of similar to um, kind of the uh, current uh, politics in progressivism right now, which is that a lot of progressive activists are really struggling. And, and this, is not, this is not unique to pro progressives. They, they're right now going through what earlier um, conservatives were going through, and they, did, they do the same thing. But mm -hmm. It doesn't make it right just because it's happening uh, on one side or the other. They, but basically, a lot of activists will be like, oh, my goodness, you know, if the other side does X and one of our people does X also, but rejects the rest, like, oh, no, like they, they've, they, they've accepted something from the other side. You know, like we have to completely reject everything on the other side. Hmm. Um, you know, like that's an extreme. Like there are, you can you can mix and match things together. And that's partly how good theology is done. And, and good activism is, is finding finding middle ground. Um, but there are certain hard lines, like no matter what, like, you know, there are certain things you can't compromise on. Mm. And certainly 
in relationship to Jesus and Satan, as if, you know, similarly in relationship to any, you know, uh, super contrasting issue, you have to be logically coherent. Mm. So if you're going to say I'm turning right, I can't also say at the same time I'm turning left. That would make me incoherent. Mm. It would make the words meaningless. It would also be impossible if you took the word seriously. So if I say, you know, what would Satan do in relationship to uh, how to treat other people or his children? And then you look at what would Jesus do, right? Those are going to go in diametrically opposed positions and directions. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to go in the right direction because what defines Satan's character, both in the Hebrew Bible, as well as his more elaborate version in the New Testament, is um, a, a sort of vindictiveness, mm-hmm. a sort of um, retributive justice. It, it, it's, it's the Satan in the Hebrew Bible who always wants to say human beings don't cut it. They deserve the punishment. Mm. And it's always God debating with the Satan about mercy. And it's very important then to realize that if God is love and God is going in that direction of what the fruits of love go, and the Satan's direction is to pull away from love towards a more callous, uh, heartless, unmerciful sort of vindictive justice, Uh, which, you know, kind of he's presented as like the arch prosecutor in heaven in the Old Testament. Hmm. If that's the direction he's going in, it's necessarily going to lead away from love. Love doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be, you know, justice, there can't be uh, punishments, there can't be correction, but love is always done as the undergirding principle behind all those things. And love is always restorative Hmm. because it can't lose the thing that it loves. On the other hand, right, so if you can see that those two directions are going the way that they are, Mm. then if you suddenly start thinking about hell and you start imagining and and kind of conceiving in your mind of what kind of character the God who controls hell has to have in order for that to work, it doesn't look like the God of love yeah, because there's nothing Mm. restorative about it. And it's not actually justice because the punishment far outweighs what would be conceivable for um, what the actual crimes are. Hmm. And when you look at Satan's character and what the description I just gave you, and you, you look at the description of how he's presented, especially in the Hebrew Bible and so forth, suddenly you're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense as the product of something that would come from Satan. So yeah. now you come into a problem that you're describing God using characteristics that people in the Hebrew Bible and and in the New Testament, the Gospels, they would have recognized that as sort of a picture of the Satan. Hmm. And now suddenly you're presenting that as the picture of God. Well, there's going to become a lot of confusion there. Even if you yourself consciously know that you're separating these two things, even if you kind of bracket it and say, well, this is just an exception. God has to do this, whatever. The very fact that you've allowed your imagination to entertain God in any satanic capacity Mm. allows your conception of God elsewhere to begin to become corrupted. And you see that again and again in so many places, even today, where you'll meet people who believe that everyone around them is going to hell and they are some of the most unloving, horrible kinds of people to hang around and talk with. They're toxic. And you can see how their belief about hell has in fact crept into everything else that they believe because they have tried to be logical, but in the wrong direction 
assuming that hell is correct about God's character, they then take that as their lead for how to understand everything else about God necessarily. And Ellen White, when, you know, she, for those that don't know, Ellen White, you know, helped found the, the denomination of Seventh-day Adventism way back in the 1850s. Um, and so when she had these experiences, they were back in the 18, uh, late 1830s, 1840s. So a long time ago, it was right before, you know, the Civil War, lots of stuff. But when she, back then, was thinking about these things, um, she herself recognized that, like, the ability for Christians to not recognize that the image of God that they were worshiping looks a, a lot like Satan mm. was, like, probably one of the greatest deceptions Satan had ever managed to create because what better deception can occur than that you don't recognize who you're worshiping mm. or what allegiance that you're giving to it's like you know to not know that you're sick when you're coughing um that you know it it's amazing it's like you it's it's like a self-deception except that it's it's much worse because mm. this is affecting everything if god if satan can manage to make himself look like god in some capacities then there's always the ability for you to mistake Satan for God in other capacities. Mm. You know, you have to draw a strict line and recognize that if God is good, he's not evil. And if you can make that strict line, then you can. One of the problems I've had in my books, you know, that I tried to address is Christians who want to say, no, 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 no. God can hate perfectly. Mm. God can love perfectly. He can do both. No, he can't. That's right. logically incoherent. That's yeah. like saying God can be perfectly evil and perfectly good. There's no such thing as perfectly <laughs> good. Perfect. Perfectly hateful is completely, perfectly unloving. Yeah. It cancels out. That's why it's perfect. It's no matter what pretty language you use, it doesn't work. <laughs> well, well, like, but what does perfection mean? It means right. entirely correctly that one pure thing. So if mm. you're purely hateful, you can, there's no room for anything else because yeah. anything else is a corruption of that perfection of being perfectly, you know, angry, perfectly hateful. Uh, so you have to draw that line. You have to recognize it. One of the things that really sent me down this track of kind of rethinking hell and stuff was I was thinking one day, like I had I'd read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, and that kind of opened up a whole new world for me. But I was doing some like reading on my own, um, just in my Bible. and I had this thought that like, you know, Jesus and God ask us to forgive and to love, like to love our enemies, uh, even to forgive enemies. I mean, even Jesus on the cross saying, you know, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. Like, if this is what God's asking me to do, but yet when, you know, God's enemies, quote, get before him at the pearly gates and he sends them to hell, it's like God can't do the very thing that he's asking me to do. Like, that doesn't sound very much like God. Yeah, it's it's a very strange right? theology in which God yeah. is, is said to be asking you to do things that he himself doesn't need to. And the only way you can support that is a divine command theory, which, mm. of course, like my book is completely against. And kind right. of throws under, <laughs> kind of uses the Bible itself to show it's unbiblical. But, you know, I mean, the only way you can support that is to kind of have uh, a very conservative divine command theory model of ethics where God basically can do anything he wants. He could murder everybody and he'd still be righteous. Yeah. Um, you know, like yeah. unless you have that model, nothing about that idea makes any sense mm. because, you know, it, it, if you're seeing, and then on top of that, it doesn't make sense of Jesus as an incarnation. If Jesus says, you know, like in John, if you've seen me, then you've seen the father, you know, I'm, I'm the image of who God is. 
Well, it doesn't make any sense then to be like, yeah, that, that was apparently the image of God <laughs> at that moment in that time, but then get, change the circumstances and God's going to look a little different. Right. Uh, you know, it just doesn't add up. It's not logical. Mm. I think one of the biggest problems, you know, people talk lots of crap about logic. They do all the time. Like, oh, you're trying to be elitist. Oh, you're trying to, <laughs> to go ahead and, uh, and uh, put some sort of uh, ethnic or otherwise, you know, whatever. There's lots of arguments people come up with against logic. But in the end, logic is just like the philosopher Wittgenstein argued. It's just a language game. It's like playing chess. You want to play chess correctly. You, uh, and I mean, mind you, that's an interesting term, play chess correctly. <laughs> you know, chess is a game that's defined by everyone kind of coming to accept what the rules of that game are. So yeah. if they understand that, you know, this is how many spaces the rook can move, this is how many spaces the bishop can move, you can play chess perfectly with someone. You, one will win, one will lose, it'll be fun. But what happens when somebody is playing the game and they change the rules? without telling you. They just mm -hmm. start playing it like the bishop can move any direction he wants. The king can only move, you know, a certain... Like, what happens is that you can't play the game anymore. Mm. It, it's not that logic is per se um, always perfectly right. It's that it works if everyone's working on it. Mm. If somebody decides to go off and do something else, it breaks the game. Reality runs on such a game. It runs on the ability for us to... Uh, recognize certain things happen a certain way. If you try to break that, it breaks the ability to communicate. Mm. And when you talk about theology, we're trying to do communication about God. Theology, you know, God talk, uh, speech about God. In order for speech to work, it works on logic. In mm. order for people to communicate with one another, it must work on logic. And that means that if you're going to do theology, you break the game the moment you try to say, but human intellect is corrupted mm. and we cannot talk about the great things of God. Well, then you're screwed. Right. You know, it just, you're done. Like the game's over. There, <laughs> there is no point. And then it throws into question, well, why do we have a Bible in the first place? Mm. Why does it ask us questions? Why does it invite us to learn things? Why, like none of that makes sense if in fact our human nature is corrupted. C.S. Lewis made this argument. He, he wrote that this was a ridiculous idea because of the amount of times the Bible talks about and asks people to use their reasoning. Mm. It, it, it's just ridiculous to assume that you have corrupt logic and you can't entertain anything. Yes, you have a corrupt logic. We all do. I think that's explicit. But it can't be so corrupt that good and evil are mixed up or else there's no sense in telling us in scripture to avoid evil. Mm. We wouldn't even know what that is. Mm. So you might as well just avoid the language and just tell us don't do X, don't do Y. It, that's not how scripture works. Scripture is working on the premise that we can understand the character of God. We mm. can intuit what is good and evil. And we can incarnate Christ's spirit into our own lives. That only works if we have um, an, a model of ethics and, and an ability to talk about the divine in a way that allows us to understand God. Mm. So when people and conservatives try to kind of throw off the conversation by saying, well, you think hell is evil or you think hell is problematic because of your um, misinformed views and stuff. It's like, well, yeah, but if, if your premise is that no matter what my views are wrong, well, then you've broken the game. There's no good theology here yeah. for you yeah. because you're not even interested in talking about God. You're interested in basically ending the conversation about God. There's no dialogue. It's just you telling me the way it is.
Exactly. And who's yeah. to say that your belief that it's correct is not also completely fallible according to right. your own idea, right? How would right. you, how would you, have how are you exempt, script? right? <laughs> how are you exempt if your idea, like you look at scripture and go, it's perfectly clear. Why do you disagree? What if your corruption right. is so bad that you're the one that's all screwed up and you're looking at the scripture, misreading it and thinking that everyone else is wrong? Like it's so illogical. There's no rules or anything to help. Uh, rein in, uh, you know, the incoherency. And that's why we're not having any substantive discussions uh, mm. with evangelicals about hell, because in essence, the average evangelical has just kind of thrown away their reasoning. They've, mm. they've accepted the idea that there is no ability to reason. And if there's no ability to reason, you can't have a conversation. That's right. One of the things I thought you'd be really good at providing some perspective on is kind of the history or the origins of the doctrine of hell. We have a, a closed Facebook group and uh, I threw out the question to the, the group. There's like 170 people in there. And I said, I'm doing this series on hell. These are the people I'm talking to. Uh, what questions do you have? And everybody who responded, like one of their questions was, how did we get to where we are today? Like, where did all this hell talk start? And in your book, you have a really strong case that hell isn't really even in the Hebrew scriptures, which I know that now, but growing up, that was like a foreign idea to me. So I guess if hell didn't come from the writings of the Old Testament, uh, where did it come from? And then how did it become like such a cornerstone for so many Christians to the point where, like we just said, if you dare question it, you know, hello, Rob Bell, you're deemed to be a heretic. So maybe maybe take us to school here a little bit. Absolutely. I, I think, so the first of all, like, like you said, it's kind of shocking to some people to realize yeah. that in the Hebrew Bible... Um, idea of hell isn't there mm. uh, and part of the reason is because the scriptures that are in the hebrew bible in the old testament they seem to hint around at oh i don't know maybe three different possible ideas um the majority view is and it all relates around this term called sheol um mm. and sheol is kind of like the place where you go when you die but without kind of making it into something that it's not for a lot of the Hebrew Bible, Sheol is sort of literally just a burial place. It's mm. just the earth underneath where you bury people. And there's no consciousness. There's no, there's no recognition of anything. It, lots of scriptures talk about how uh, those in Sheol do not praise God, uh, righteous or wicked. They know nothing of what's happening. They don't have thoughts. They don't, God is not there with them. Mm. Um, and so you have this idea of basically annihilation. You know, people die and then their, their spirit ceases and it's over. And this is um, where everybody goes, right? Yeah, everybody, including everybody. animals, which is why Ecclesiastes mm. talks about how the animals are more blessed because they go to Sheol without ever having any of the knowledge that humans do when they go to Sheol. Mm. You know, the, the, the animal's dumb. He doesn't know that he's going to go there. Humans are, are, are cursed because they do know that they're going to go there and mm. they have the same fate. And, and Ecclesiastes is upset that, you know, uh, the righteous and the wicked both have the same fate. And this is said over and over again, you know, in Job as well and other, like, this is a common refrain, you know, of the idea that those who go to Sheol, they're going to have an eternally similar fate. There's no difference. Uh, God does not discriminate. And right then and there, already with this one view, you understand there's no hell. There's no heaven either. There's mm. no, there's no there's nothing. anything. <laughs> right. There's nothing. It just ends. So in mm. this sense, it's funny within religion, this is a very, uh, a very specific kind of idea kind of related to, you know, just kind of a secular humanism view of, of, of death, you know, just mm. 
it ends. You know, that's your, your life in this world. Um, there were others who talked about death and, and they imagined it and probably influenced by other things as well. But a, a few references seem to talk about people who are dead as possibly like shades. So they're kind of like ghosts in some mm-hmm. sense, but then they don't, they're shades that are trapped under the earth and they don't know anything. And it's kind of a gloomy existence. And, and for whatever reason, there's no, there's no like mention about that. Then there's a few mm-hmm. others who talk about it like, oh, well, the shades do get excited when new people join or their enemies join. They're like, ha, 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 look, you came. And, and, and it's, sometimes it's hard to know whether or not this is poetic or whether this is literal. You know, it, it's always difficult to know that when you're talking about topics like this and it's mm-hmm. in the context of, of poetry. But if you take them literally and understand them that way, you also have like the reference of Samuel the prophet when Saul comes to the witch of Endor and, and Samuel the prophet comes up. And, and some Christians try to explain that away and they'll be like, well, yeah, but you know, um, that could have just been a demon pretending to be uh, Samuel the prophet. It's like, mm. yeah, it could have been. But then you could say that about anything in the Bible. Oh, yeah, that could have just been Satan pretending to be God and said that. Well, that could have just, yeah, exactly. The couldas could go on and on and on. Right. The, the text itself doesn't give any hint to imagine that this is not actually Samuel. Hmm. And the message Samuel gives is quite in line with God, not, not Satan. So the best thing you can take from that is, again, um, you know, for some who like wrote that story down, they believed that you know, when you died, it was possible that your soul could be brought back up. Mm. Um, and then, you know, again, some texts talk about that God is not in Sheol and some texts say that, you know, you're everywhere, including Sheol. So in the Hebrew Bible, there is this kind of, it's not completely hopeless, even if the majority view is that way. Like in the book of Job, it talks about how like, there's no hope of a resurrection that, you know, as long as heaven exists, there will never be one. Mm. Um, so the, the old Testament view is just very simplistic. You have this life. And maybe there's questions about what happens on the other side, but it's iffy. What happens then in the second temple period after the Babylonians destroyed the first temple and Ezra and Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the temple, what ends up happening is that you start getting these new ideas popping up, uh, probably because of the new influence from Hellenism and Greek culture, uh, but also just, you know, probably reflection theologically on questions uh, of, of what really happens, because perhaps the Israelites in the first temple period just didn't give attention to these ideas. Maybe they isolated themselves, but certainly in the second temple period, they were kind of forced to deal with these questions. And as they mm-hmm. did, they began to develop new ways of thinking about and ideas. And among these ideas, of course, was the idea of resurrection. We don't know exactly how that idea uh, popped up and why, but it did. And I suspect personally that there was some sort of prophetic reason um, there were probably unknown prophets that helped to kind of spark this idea and, 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 and give it gravity in, in early Judaism. But the thing is, is that along with the idea of resurrection, the idea that life can go on, ideas were certainly being developed about, well, what happens in Sheol? What, what really mm. goes on there? And, you know, some of the first literature we find that talks about this is like the Book of Enoch, or as scholars call it, First Enoch, where you end up getting discussion about what ends up happening when you die. And, um, you know, in these descriptions, for instance, like in the Book of Watchers, you have this description of people in pits and certain kinds of people in these dark, gloomy, under-earth pits. They, you know, they're gnashing their teeth. They're waiting and anxious, you know. Um, some of them were gonna, are going to face judgment. Some will just forever stay in those pits. Mm. And others are waiting for their resurrection vindication to eventually come. And... Uh, you know, but here's the interesting thing. There's no fire. 
Mm. When there is a fire mentioned, it's in relationship to the angels who had sex with women um, and uh, in Genesis 6, because for those that don't know, the book of Enoch has that interpretation and, and retells the story in a more elaborate way. But anyways, um, aside from that point, the angels who sinned, if we want to use a generic term, is who the, the, the fire is uh, meant for mm. in the book of Enoch. People themselves are not really referenced in relationship to that. Mm. And um, you kind of see the influence of Hellenism with, with Hades and the fires of judgment in relationship to the angels, but you also see that there's this reluctance to kind of um, bring that in on people. And so these ideas develop and there's a lot of diversity of thought. And so it's quite interesting that when we come to the New Testament and we start viewing um, where these uh, ideas have now led to in the gospels, we know from history and documents that the Jews at this time don't have a single idea about hell and a mm. bunch of them don't accept it. Like even though these ideas are popping up, there are still people in Jesus's own day, according to the gospels who still don't accept the new views of Sheol and have the old ones of mm. where people are just, you know, they're just dead. They're not conscious. And so you have to kind of think to yourself, well, if we know that they have diversity of views at this time, how does that affect Jesus when he's going around giving these hell quotations, yeah, right? The yeah. way evangelicals will talk about it, you'd almost imagine that they, all the Jews had a certain belief. You know, they all were in agreement on certain issues and they all understood these things. And we know that that's BS. Yeah, that's, one of the, that's one of the things people first. always say to me is like, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. Like he was so, was such a solid idea. Uh, yeah, great. If you look at certain, if you look at certain quotations, yeah. you know, in the Gospels of Mark uh, and Luke and John, he barely ever talks about it. Mm. Almost all the quotations about hell come from the, the Gospel of Matthew, and so you know, great. Matthew emphasizes it, and if mm. you read Matthew a lot, it seems like Jesus talks about it all the time. If you read Mark, or if you read, uh, you know, Luke, or if you read John, there's nothing in John. You know, you could just okay, great your argument is built on looking at one gospel only. That doesn't yeah. mean Jesus didn't use this a lot. It just means that we should probably also take seriously that the idea wasn't attractive to the audiences that Mark, Luke, and John were talking to. Hmm. And it was attractive to the audiences Matthew was talking to precisely because of this point, different Jews had different opinions. Right. So the good important question we have to ask is how does that affect Jesus's teaching? Hmm. Now you say in the book that Jesus you kind of have this interesting way then of talking about Jesus and his teaching. Like you talk about how when Jesus talked about hell, perhaps he wasn't so much talking about his thoughts about hell, but maybe he was talking about the view of hell that his listeners would have had and was therefore making a greater point than just the point of talking about hell. Is that correct? Yeah. It's, it's an idea that when you hear it at first, it, you can think, well, that's a creative way to get rid of a problem. You know, yeah. Right. I had to read it a couple of times to yeah. grasp just it. Assume, yeah. <laughs> just assume that the right. person, you know, isn't really telling you their view. Right. But there's real reason for believing this. Um, mm. So for instance, we know as a pedagogical kind of activity that Jesus did, he would go around uh, and, and in all the gospels, when he talks to the Sadducees, he, talks to them based only off of their own ideas and scriptures like the Torah. The Sadducees didn't accept any other books of the Bible. They only accepted the first five books, the Torah. So mm. Jesus only talks to them about those issues with the Torah. And then the only time that Jesus doesn't do that is when the Sadducees on one occasion in Matthew's gospel um, go ahead and uh, start to quote uh, the book of Tobit which they don't believe in. And then Jesus starts rebutting them 
in regards to it's almost like Jesus is like, all right, sure. You want to go beyond your canon. All right. Now, now let's start talking. Hmm. But before that, other than that one occasion, Jesus pretty much decides if I'm going to make my points to the Sadducees, I'll just work with what they believe. I'm not going to go ahead and go beyond that. Hmm. And when he talks to other groups, he's clearly interacting with them in a way he wasn't interacting with the Sadducees. And he's allowing a larger range of canon and a larger range of issues. He does not, in other words, he does not have, just based off this example, he does not have a idea in his mind that he needs to go ahead and first correct others before he can teach them. Mm. In his mind, he'll work with wherever they're at. And then from that point onwards, he's going to go ahead and uh, try to get the message through the symbols they know. Mm. This is something you see kind of all throughout the gospels. I mean, the way Jesus presents parables, the way that he talks with people, he's always asking them questions. Mm. You rarely see Jesus correcting people in the sense of like, well, you have this idea and it's wrong. Um, that's not really a thing. He's, he's more about trying to get a big message across using whatever means they need to have that message given to them. And this is not a new idea pedagogically. We see this also in the Hebrew Bible with the book of Job. When God talks to Job, who came from a polytheistic society, God mentions that there are other gods. And so, you know, it, it, this idea that, um, you know, well, why isn't God correcting Job? And, and, you know, for those people who are like, well, what if it's not God? Okay, great. Why isn't a, a writer... <laughs> from you know judaism right. correcting the manuscript hmm. uh and having god not mention these things right like you know it fine say what you want in your mind about the story whatever your beliefs are about what can or cannot be possible fine but the writers in judaism didn't think to go ahead and change the manuscripts which they do on other occasions but they didn't hmm. hear so you know the thing to say is uh the point that you can get from this is that they the manuscript copiers clearly understood that God here is trying to get a message across to somebody without necessarily having to work through all their baggage first. Right. There's a, there's a priority to the message mm. as opposed to these little facts that somebody might mistakenly think because of their culture. Mm. So, but aside from that, so you have Jesus, you know, going ahead around talking about hell, especially in Matthew, a few times in Mark and Luke. And that's fine. When you look at how Jesus is talking about hell, he seems to talk in two mutually exclusive ways for the most part. He'll talk, about, uh, he'll talk about hell as a place of fire and bright, you know, bright flames and burning. And then he'll talk about it as a place that's gloomy and dark with gnashing of teeth, both in the gloomy sense and as well in the sense of uh, something that is happening in bright flames. Hmm. And the question you have to, and what's interesting is Jesus doesn't seem to mix up these metaphors. When he talks about it as gloomy and dark, he's not talking about it as bright and flamey. And when he talks about it as bright and full of flames, he's not talking about it as, as gloomy. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, why would Jesus have such contradictory images, right? If it's full of flames and fire, it's bright. And if it's dark and gloomy, it's not full of flames and fire. Like these images are very disparate. It's funny that evangelicals never deal with this. You know, they, they focus exclusively on the fiery flame version and they almost always ignore all of the texts about gloomy and darkness. Right. Uh, and that's even referenced in yeah. second Peter as well uh, beyond the gospels. So, um, okay, fine. So Jesus is presenting in these different ways. What's interesting is again, do these map onto other ideas in Second Temple Judaism? Sure. Like I mentioned, the Book of Watchers in First Enoch presents the idea of the dead as awaiting their judgment in these gloomy, dark pits 
and the gnashing of the teeth in that context, right? To gnash teeth in, in its translation in the Septuagint, uh, when it talks about um, gnashing of teeth, it's in reference to being angry and, and upset mm. and, and vengeful. And it makes sense in the first Enoch context. They're in these pits waiting for their judgment for years and years and years. Yeah, they're gnashing teeth just waiting to get out. Then it makes sense, like why in Revelation, you know, Satan comes around and gathers the nations for battle after the resurrection, the, 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 the resurrection of the dead. Oh, yeah, like you, all these people who are just waiting there, waiting for their, their, their chance to get out. But then on the other hand, that's certainly, and let's think of it this way. If you were a Jew who believed in first Enoch, and we know that there were Jews in the time of Jesus, mainly the Essenes, who did believe in first Enoch of scripture, this is how they're going to understand it mm. because this is their background. Right. And if they were more to the party of, well, I believe in uh, flames and fire for people currently, if they were more Hellenized in that sense, and they had that idea, then they would hear the gnashing of teeth and think, oh, well, they're gnashing their teeth because they're in pain and they're angry about the pain, right? Mm. So the images work in such a way that wherever somebody's position is or whatever their prior beliefs are, they're understanding Jesus through that prism. Mm. And Jesus isn't doing anything to try and correct that. So you kind of can come away from this and say, well, then there's a principle here. Jesus is not using hell imagery to introduce any ideas about hell. Jesus is using hell imagery because people already have those images. Right. And, and, and mind yeah. you, when Jesus speaks to different people, um, like when certain people are dead and he's going to help, you know, bring them back from the dead, he explicitly says on several occasions to those people, well, this person is just asleep. They're not mm -hmm. really dead. Right. That's the old Sheol view. Hmm. That's not the hellfire view. So you've got Jesus talking out of all sides of his mouth with numerous different images of hell. And then on top of that, not only are there different descriptions of what hell looks like, there's also this, and I never included this in the book, and I realize now I kind of wish I had. So here's an exclusive for the What If podcast. There you go, um, cue, cue the dramatic music. <laughs> yeah, you, should, you should add some in. Um, so what ends up happening here is, take the story of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, yeah. okay? And this is what I want to draw attention to. The timing of when hellfire occurs. Hmm. So in the rich man and Lazarus story, it's presented that when you die, you go straight to flames. Yeah. And, and you're there at that moment. Abraham's there already. It's happening. And what's interesting, however, is that in other statements that Jesus makes about hell, hell is something to come, something in the day of judgment, hmm. something that is awaiting, that is coming, that will happen to people. And so already right there and then you have a, not only a disagreement from Jesus when he talks about where, uh, what hell looks like, but also when, when. is hell happening, hmm. which you know, for revelation, you know, it's uh, revelation doesn't assume hell's happening. Now it assumes that it's a kind of an event that occurs at the end of time. It doesn't even call it hell. It calls it uh, the lake of fire. It says hell gets thrown in the lake of fire. We can hmm. get to that. But the point is, is that basically Jesus never gives one view of hell. So you have to ask, is Jesus schizophrenic? Uh, does he, does he kind of jump all over the place? Does he have, um, does he have shifting views or is Jesus shifting? Is Jesus simply utilizing the imagery of whatever his audience around him is in fact thinking and, and believing. And if that's the case, nothing he's telling us about hell actually tells us anything about hell. 
It just tells us about what the people around him believed about hell. Mm. And if that's the case, that's important to note because mm. it means we shouldn't be looking to Jesus to try in the gospel accounts to try and figure out what hell is. That's not going to tell us. That's just going to tell us what people then already believed about hell. And we can look to second temple literature at the time to try and key in where those ideas came from, mm. but it doesn't give us insight into God, the future, the, you know, the, the supernatural world. None of that is, is available to us from what Jesus said. Just like if we looked at what Jesus, what books Jesus quotes from, um, if we only had the Sadducee quotes, we wouldn't know what Jesus really believed about scripture. Mm. It would look to us like he only believed in the Torah, but that's only because we didn't get to see the other groups he was talking to. So right. the fact that we can see Jesus talking to so many different groups about hell and even groups who apparently didn't believe in hell, which is why he would use the older Sheol view of just sleep. Well, yeah, that tells us something. This is not a solid foundation for a doctrine, especially given all the baggage uh, that this view brings to how we view God. Mm. Now, would it be fair to say then that it's just something that came to my mind, but that we need to read almost like Jesus's words about hell in the way that we read like his words, like in the parables, because it's like when you, when you read a parable, for instance, like you don't read it as like, this is a literal story. You read it as, okay, well, he's telling this story and he's making a greater point. So what's the point that he's making? Is it the same kind of thing when it comes to his, his words about hell? I think so, exactly, yeah. because, I mean, in some sense, you know, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that's a parable. Right. Uh, so is the parable of the sheeps and the goats yep. in, in Matthew 25. Who, who in their right mind thinks of that and goes, we're all going to be transformed into sheeps and goats? Right. <laughs> Nobody. Because it's, it's not, you know it's not intended as a literal description. Right. So why in the world would you be looking to the parable of the sheeps and the goats for accurate imagery of what's going to look like at you know the judgment day why mm. would you be looking at the parable of the rich man and lazarus to try and get accurate information of what hell or the afterlife looks like mm. visually it doesn't yeah. make sense right now obviously there's there's this evolution of thought that you describe so we have um sheol in the hebrew scriptures and that's just the place of the dead then you talk about um the book of enoch and where it becomes fire for the angels and then all of a sudden it morphs into fire for humans and then we've got Jesus talking about all these things with hell that the church often uses to point to as evidence for hell. So like when, when did it become a time or did it maybe, I guess it was a, maybe it was a, a gradual process, but like when did this become so cemented into Christian theology that like you can't even dare to question it? Like, was there a specific event? Was it a gradual process? Do you have any kind of insight into yeah. that? I think it's a short answer. It's, it's in some sense, it's a gradual process because mm. of the fact that, you know, uh, Hellenistic society, you know, Rome had these ideas already of, of Hades and eternal fire and punishment. And so when you're converting individuals who come from that culture and background who are already assimilated to those ideas, right, those ideas aren't strange to them. They're, uh, they're, that makes sense. what they're used to. Yeah. And what really helped this was literature that was produced um, apocryphally that enforced these ideas. So one of the, the funny things is people imagine, and we should get to that before ending, but like uh, people talk about Revelation as if, you know, Revelation is this book that condemns everyone to hell. And it's mm. funny because that's not actually true. Revelation is almost the opposite. It, it doesn't really deal with hell at all. In fact, Revelation says hell is destroyed and thrown into hell, which is a really fun uh, poetic language. We can get mm. to that. But there was another book written around the same time called The Apocalypse or the Revelation of Peter. And this book 
was included as scripture by some early Christians. And it basically is Peter with the disciples on the mountain transfiguration. Jesus gives him his hand and he shows Peter a vision of hell. And it's just, it's like the earliest version of Dante's Inferno. And so basically, you know, he gets to go through this tour of hell and he sees all these people being punished for all eternity and all these things happening. And then Jesus tells him, hey, by the way, you should tell everybody about this and let them know that they don't want to end up here. <laughs> and it's basically all the Hellenistic ideas of Hades. And then it's put in the Christian context through a vision authoritatively of Jesus. Hmm. So this book, even when it was rejected finally as, uh, by most Christians, it had been so popular and so influential which is why we could get Dante's Inferno eventually, like why we could get these, these imageries and ideas to keep developing in Christianity. So you've got gradual occult, you know, uh, people already being um, culturally assimilated to these ideas. And then you've got apocryphal books that are really influencing and creating a genre, which it did create a genre of that kept getting created to like warn people about this coming judgment. So mm. that's part of the reason why it became so inculcated into kind of the Christian mind and culture. Um, but it's just, it's not a thing. Like the, the communities of Paul would not have been sitting there thinking about this. This is one reason why Paul just doesn't deal with the issue. Mm. You, know, you don't see Paul talking about the worries of, of Christians about hellfire, right? Evangelicals talk about it incessantly. You'd expect that Paul would in his communities too, but they don't because right. that wasn't a super big concern. Their big concern that they had to deal with in Thessalonians is what happens when you die? Mm. And funny enough, you know, what does Paul talk about? Not hellfire, not, not anything to worry about judgment. It just talks about, oh yeah, there's a resurrection coming. Mm. Um, so it's, it's important to recognize where the priorities are. But I think a big concern, as I said, is to do with revelation, um, how people imagine that book in relationship to hell, people think it's supporting it. When in reality, that book undermines every major idea people have about it. Yeah, drill down into that a little bit because that was going to be my, my last question for you. Because for me, like hell, um, you know, growing up, like Revelation was the place that everybody pointed to. And I always heard, I heard the verse about hell getting thrown into the lake of fire, but that was only because I was told that, well, the lake of fire is like, the ultimate hell like you know it's like hell on steroids <laughs> like you have, you have hell and then you have real hell you know so maybe <laughs> take that apart for us a little bit yeah absolutely so i mean like what's interesting here um about revelation i know we we're, we're short on time so one of the interesting things to kind of look at in revelation is certain texts and i'll just briefly kind of outline them in the sure. book i obviously in the chapter i go much more deeply into it but you know, for instance, in Revelation 14, it talks about those who worship the beast. Hmm. And it talks about how um, 1411, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And one of the things that, you know, people can skip over in that. They can look at that and go, oh, well, see, there's smoke of torment goes up forever and ever and, and, and day or night. Great. Did you notice that in that text, uh, it's present tense. Mm. It's those who are worshiping the beast and its images, those who are receiving the mark of its name. They're alive when it says that their smoke of their torment is going up. Hmm. In other words, Revelation 14 isn't describing a future judgment on them for having worshiped the beast. Their judgment begins as they're worshiping the beast. Mm. So first of all, that text is dealing with an earthly reality. It's it doesn't tell you day. anything yeah. 
about what's going to be happening to them in the future. Hmm. Um, and then when you go ahead and see a, a very famous text that's obviously problematic, you deal with Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, you've got this big battle that takes place with Jesus using a sword to slay people and the beast is captured with the false prophet. They're thrown into hellfire. Um, and uh, all the other people, the kings of the earth, and there are these two major groups, the nations and the kings of the earth, and they're, they're, just, they're just slaughtered. And then it says the animals feast on them. And it's this gruesome kind of image in Revelation 19. But here's the important, interesting point that people miss. Jesus is described as the rider uh, on this white horse. And it, it says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So, okay, what is that sword? That sword is coming from the mouth of the word of God, which means the sword is the word of God. And in fact, we have a Bible text that uses the same image as the word of God as a two-edged sword, right? No one actually thinks the word of God as a two-edged sword is literally a sword or that it literally kills, right? right? What does right. it actually kill? It kills sin. It mm. strikes down at the hearts of people. It opens, and, and it opens them up to repentance. So what then you suddenly realize is, wait a minute, Jesus here is the word of God and the sword is the word of God and it's the word of God that's slaying these people. So that if the sword is symbolic and the white horse and Jesus and all this in this image is the death symbolic, mm. what's going on here? Like just without answering that, it just tells us, Hey, there's something here that is problematic. And when you keep reading what gets to be kind of fascinating is that in this judgment scene that follows, you know, you get Revelation 20, 14 to 15. It says, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Okay. Now, what does that mean, though? God is said to throw Hades into the lake of fire. Like, this is hell. Mm -hmm. So it's the word that Jesus even uses the most for hell. And here at the end of John's apocalypse, we're being told that God is throwing hell into hell and, and mind you, what happens when you throw something in the lake of fire? It's, it's because you're punishing it. You're destroying it. You're, 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 you're putting it at odds with what God is. So when God throws hell into the lake of fire, God is sentencing hell to the same destruction that Satan and the beast deserve. Hmm. So by punishing hell, God reveals in the book of Revelation that hell, like Satan, is in fact evil and condemned by God as being the opposite of holiness. Mm. So then hell cannot be a, a revelation of who God is any more than Satan is mm. because it's destined for the same destruction. But in order to destroy God, I mean, in, in order to destroy death, right? He has to also destroy hell according to revelation. Like they right. both are a, a, like a two part deal that brings this to a destruction. So again, what does that leave us to kind of think about one? It tells us that you can't defend hell as something good because it's something God wants to destroy. And you can't go around trying to say that hell is uh, serving some, some greater purpose if, again, God considers it to be the same as Satan and worthy of destruction, right? We don't say death serves some greater purpose, or I hope people don't, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, it's like it's a curse. The Bible's pretty clear in biblical language that death is not God's plan. If we can accept death's not God's plan, why would we be thinking here, well, in hell's case, that's different, that God made that or that's some important. No. This is something God wants to condemn. And 
what goes with that thought briefly is the same thing that when you get to the big scene at the end of Revelation, when the world is, you know, the heaven, the earth are made renewed, what is so interesting is you get this reference to, um, you get this reference to in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, the kings of the earth are mentioned again, and they're said to come into the new Jerusalem and bring it their glory. Mm. But these are the same kings of the earth who received earlier in Revelation the mark of the beast. Mm. And then we hear about the nations having come into the new Jerusalem and mm. that the nations have brought their glory. And the nations were the ones who accepted the mark of the beast. And mm. both the nations and the kings of the earth were destroyed and killed and eaten by birds in Revelation 19. But now they're here in, at the end of the story, bringing glory into the new Jerusalem. What does that mean? It, it suggests, obviously, that we're not reading Revelation carefully, that we're not thinking about hell correctly, that really this story is much larger and more in line with God's uh, restorative justice than really any current modern ideas about hell have been given credit to. Yeah, it seems like whatever fire there is is not for the purpose of punishment and torment, but the purpose of renewal. And, and it's interesting too, that like the tree of mm -hmm. life, yep. it's said that it's the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Right. What are they healing from? Yeah. Right. People don't ask that question. They usually think of like the nations as just like, Oh, people. But in revelation, the nations are a specific group who accepted the mark of the beast. Hmm. What healing do they need to be a part of heaven? Right. And I think it's just interesting when we think about restorative justice, what does that tell us about God, that the tree of life has a purpose for bringing healing to the very worst offenders? That's right. Well, Matthew, this has been fantastic. Uh, we were just about out of time. I could listen to you talk all day long, uh, but you are a busy man, and I thank you for making time for me. Thank you so much for having me. I deeply appreciate always having conversations with you, Glenn. Thank you. And before you go, are you working on anything uh, new that you want to share with us? Uh, well, I am finishing up a class I was teaching on the historical Jesus. Um, yeah. That's been super fun. Uh, we're almost done with it. I might be starting up uh, some new classes. So if anyone's interested in uh, taking a course uh, and uh, potentially learning new things, it, there's some possible upcoming opportunities. I'm working on a new book, an academic version of Saying No to God. Um, I think Right now, it's tentatively titled Fighting with God, A Theology of Confrontation. Oh, nice. um, and, uh, but that's a slow, slow ride. And I've got, I've got a project I'm currently working on in development on anti-racism with uh, an, a, a fellow professor. So it'll be interesting to, to see how that goes. Very nice. Well, I'll put all of your links in the show notes and people will go find you. All right. Thank you very much. Cool, man. You have a good day. You too. Right. God bless. Yeah.
honey, I know I'm just a passerby. I'm just a passerby. 